Hi there. Welcome to the Good Life Podcast. For Advent this year, we are looking at the ultimate Christmas renovation. In all the wonder and celebration of the season, I hope you can reflect on your relationships, your heart and words, and find areas in need of some hope and restoration. I hope you enjoy. Alrighty, well, it is Advent season, and we are starting a new series today called Christmas Renovation. How many people here, can I get a show of hands, how many of you, and you just got to claim it, either way on these questions, you're terrible at renovating. Can I get a show of hands? You're like, you don't want me on your team on the block. Can I get a show of hands? All right. Wow. Look how then many people are good because not that many people put their hands up. All right. Give me a show of hands if you're like, yep, renovation is my game. Like, I'm good at renovation. Can I get a show of hands? All right. Excellent. Just scanning around, because I'm going to apply for the block, and I just want to know who, because I've been talking to Teresa about this for years. Come on, let's do it. Like, we'll get smashed. We'll be like the crazy pastors. They'll make us look ridiculous. But it'll be worth it. We might get a house, or we might get $3,000, or nothing. If you've, if you've watched the show, some people, like, they clean up. They get, like, you know, 600 grand, and then the next people come along, and they get nothing. It's, it's a crazy show. But I've been thinking a little bit about this idea of renovation, and especially as we head into Christmas. This is the Advent season, and the word Advent means coming or arrival, and it's from a Latin word, and the, the whole idea of it is that we reflect or we actually prepare ourselves in anticipation of the arrival of the birth of the Messiah, the Christ, our Savior. And you might be saying, it's already happened. Uh, yes, historically it's already happened. But the idea as we get ourselves caught up in the wonder of this moment, as we remember Christ coming, is to actually put ourselves into the story and to actually prepare ourselves in anticipation for the arrival of Christ, God in human flesh, a little baby that will be a symbol, and not just a symbol of hope, will literally be hope. His name, as we read before, will be Prince of Peace. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1, it says his name will also be Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And so the idea as we begin this uh, Christmas renovation series on the lead up to Christmas Day is that we take some time to ask ourselves, where in our hearts and our lives do we need to do some renovating? Now, I don't know if you've ever done this, but if you, you know when you go to someone else's place for the first time, you walk in with fresh eyes. You see things that the people that live there don't see anymore. You walk in and you go, well, there's a pair of underwear in the corner over there behind the lounge. Um, and the people at the house don't know that their kid threw that there. Um, and you walk in and you notice there's dust on the, on the fan. No, not at my place. My wife's the cleanest person ever. Now, there could be a little bit. And if there is, it's because I didn't do what she asked me to, to, to contribute and help. Um, 
we, we had an inspection. We were renting a house, and we had an inspection where a real estate agent turned up, and the house was immaculate. Like, I was actually, man, we're going to blitz this. And we did. We actually got a very, very good report. But a, a photo came back of the fan, and on top of the fan, there was some dust. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. We weren't looking up. We were looking down and around. And it's just a little reminder of the fact that sometimes we're looking around or we clean some parts of our house and not other parts. And hopefully myself, I mean, I'm, trust me, I'm never going to come to your house and look at your fan. I won't, will not be judging you at your house. And that's probably, I'm not going to get an invite anymore anyway. Um, but there is an element where when you go somewhere for the first time, you look at something with fresh eyes. And when you're familiar with something, you can not notice things because you're just now familiar with it. And this Advent season is an opportunity for us to pause, to slow ourselves down and to say, hey, is there anything in my life that might need a little bit of renovation? Uh, how's my heart going? We're going to talk about that next week. How have my words been? Um, how are my relationships? That's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, how's the pace of my life? And it's a great chance to slow down and to ask ourselves if Christ came to give us life and life in all its fullness. That's what Jesus says in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 10. He says, I have come that you may have life and life in abundance. The question is, do we, as Jesus' followers, are we embracing that life? And the, the reality is, probably in some ways and in some areas, but I bet there's some areas in our lives where things have become uh, a little fragile. Maybe the structure needs a, some adjustments, or maybe we need some fresh paint, or maybe we, you know, we need to look at the kitchen of our lives and say, hey, does, does, some, does some work need to be done here? And in no way is this meant to be an opportunity for us to look at ourselves and feel bad and say, my life as a house needs some renovation. Oh, how bad I am. This is not that at all. The scripture is super clear that when Jesus came, he did not come to condemn. He came to give life. He came to heal, to restore, to set people free. He came to offer grace, mercy, transforming, healing love. And you know what? This Christmas, I need some of that in my life. I need some transforming, healing work in my life. Because life's dynamic. And something that I worked on 10 years ago may need an adjustment again. And it's not that sometimes information is we're hearing for the first time. It's just that sometimes we need to hear things again because something that we've become familiar with may need some reflection and for us to look at again. So I want to begin by having a look at a really challenging scripture. And it's found in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5 in the famous Sermon on the Mount. And this is kind of Jesus' you know, um, big picture vision for how he sees life and faith and what it means to be his disciple. And in the context of this passage that we're about to read... He begins talking to his disciples about anger. And in a whole bunch of different paragraphs through this section of Scripture, he has this phrase where he says, You have heard it said, but I say unto you. 
You ever heard that before? Jesus says, you have heard it said, and what he's referring to is the law, the Hebrew scriptures, the Torah. He said, you've heard it said, and, and what Jesus is doing is, he's addressing the fact that people have come to scripture with their interpretations, and they have used a tick box process of looking at the law and saying, oh yes, um, do not murder. And they go, well, I haven't murdered. I'm good with God. And Jesus actually wants to get to the spirit of the law. Of course you shouldn't murder. He hasn't come to abolish that idea. But he says, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I say unto you, do not be angry with your brother. And all of a sudden, he ups the ante, so to speak, in getting to the heart of what even murder is about. Because Jesus is always interested in transformation of the heart. He's not interested in condemning. He's not interested in showing you up. He's interested in getting to what's really going on below the surface and inviting you into life eternal. The kind of life that liberates. Because if you deal with your anger or your jealousy or your envy or anything in your heart or life that's lurking below the surface, God knows you'll walk in freedom. You'll walk in peace. You'll have hope. You'll walk in the way of love and you experience joy. So then we get to this section in the context of Jesus talking about anger. And he really then gets next level when it comes to spiritual practices. Because Jesus knows that his disciples and those who are listening have gotten pretty good at following the laws, doing all the religious things like giving offerings, kind of like a Thanksgiving offering, at following the system and the structure, and Jesus wants to get to the heart of what it's all about. And so he says to them in verse 23 and 24, therefore, and so the the therefore means in the verses, in what he's just said, in addressing, do not be angry. Do not call your brother or your sister a fool or an idiot because he says you're in danger of the hellfire. The word there is Gehenna. It's a reference to the rubbish dump that's outside Jerusalem that they all know about. And he's basically saying if you walk down this path of anger and you treat other people as less than human, by calling them fool or idiot or any other name that belittles the humanity or the image of God in this person, you will live and your reality will be this hellfire, this Gehenna, this rubbish tip that burns all the time. And so he says, don't live that way. And then he says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, this was very often a you might say an above and beyond gift, a special gift where when he's saying this, he's saying this a long way away from where people would turn up to the temple in Jerusalem. So if someone's going to go all to all the effort of walking or traveling on their donkey or their horse all the way into Jerusalem, it's a big deal to bring an offering, a sacrifice at the temple. So if you do that, you're like, man, I, I, I really went out of my way to make this offering. But then he says, if you get there at the altar 
And there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Which is interesting that he says that and not if you have something against them. I mean, if I'm Jesus, I'm saying, hey, if you've got something against someone else, you should deal with that. Jesus doesn't say that. I'm sure it's included in all of his teaching. But he, interestingly, he gets to the heartbeat of what God cares most about. And that is restoration, reconciliation, peace, and love. Or as we say often, the Hebrew word is shalom. It means goodness. The welfare of another. This is not just a, a greeting. This is a loaded word that means so much. It's not just peace as we would understand as the absence of conflict, but it means it's the way things are meant to be. This is the invitation that Jesus is inviting all who will follow him to live their lives in and about and around. And all of this teaching in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 8, in this vision, this picture, the Sermon on the Mount, is getting to the heartbeat of what needs to take place. And so he says here, Here's what you should do if you realize that someone else may have something against you. If someone else is harboring a hurt or a disappointment or a pain, if there's something that means they are struggling to have a relationship with you, you should leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. Now, some of us are going, oh, that is such a good way to get out of giving an offering. Do you know what? I've got a friend. They just happen to live in, in England. And it's going to take me a long time to get there. Jesus says, I don't have to give a gift. I should just leave it. That's right. Leave it. We'll collect it. This has got nothing to do with giving an offering and the plate or the avoidance of giving a gift, what Jesus is getting at, the actual heart, the focus of this is worship of God, any kind of sacrifice, any kind of giving or service has to be connected to what the law and the prophets are all about. So people gave gifts to follow the laws but what Jesus is trying to remind them is that it all is summed up in loving God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving your what? Your neighbor as yourself. This is what it all comes down to. So sure, do your religious practices. Give. It'll be beneficial. It'll help something. But that's not what it's all about. God wants to see Relational harmony. He wants to see reconciliation. He wants people to experience the life of the kingdom of heaven on earth. He wants you to be reconciled to God. He wants you to be reconciled to your neighbor. And part of loving God is loving your neighbor. And part of your worship means that if you sense that something isn't right with someone else, and it's a big challenge, make sure you get your priorities right. Leave that gift and go and do whatever you can to try and put things right with that person. In other words, be reconciled with them. Now, let's pause that for a moment. Some years ago, I had a, um, a falling out with someone 
that I had done life with for probably 15 years. I'd worked with this person, they were a significant person in my life, and then there was a falling out. Now, I have generally been uh, the kind of person that gets along with people that has very few fallouts or issues with others. I realise in hindsight, much of that is because I'm pretty good at avoiding confrontation. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? So if you're good at avoiding confrontation, you actually lower the chance of conflict. It's kind of cool. Until you can't. The problem is you've gotten so good at avoiding conflict and having relative peace with everyone that when you do have a conflict, you're actually not that great at fixing it. And so there was a falling out and it's a complex story. Like most things, it was a a misunderstanding. Someone interprets your actions that cause hurt or disappointment to them as intentional or naive or foolish. And in this case, I felt deeply hurt by this person and the way they treated me. I actually felt that I had been wronged and that there was an injustice to me. And so Therese and I had uh, got married and we were launching into a new church. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but broken relationships can take a toll on us even when we ignore them or we, we, we try to move on from them. They can suck up your creative energy. Ever notice that? I've done work over the years with um, you know, business teams and I tell them all the time, the power of a professional apology is significant. Because we subconsciously carry tension in our bodies, we avoid people in the office. And when we can actually go and say, hey, I just want to say I'm sorry, it actually allows our brain and our emotions to be able to operate creatively and doing our work better. And I realized as we were heading into this new era in our life that I was feeling weighed down and heavy hearted over this situation. So I went to a wise leader at the time we lived in Sydney, I drove 45 minutes uh, to meet with this leader. And during the course of this conversation, I brought up the issue and I said, look, I I need to talk to you about something that's happened because I don't know how to deal with this. And what I thought the person was going to say as a wise kind of sage in my life, at the time I was in my uh, early 30s, and I expected them to say to me, you know what? Forgive them. Let it go. Move on. God will sort it out. But they didn't. They said something that I, at the time, reacted to and thought was wrong. They said, I can see that you've clearly been hurt and there seems like there's an injustice here. What I'd love you to do is to go to them. And I said, it's up to you if you do it. He said, "Uh, why don't you go to them, meet up with them, and ask for forgiveness and apologize to them for anything you might have done that's caused hurt or pain in their life. And I said, yeah, okay. And in my head I went, no way at all am I doing that. And because I didn't like confrontation, I went, okay. And then I went out to my car, got in the car, and as I drove home, I had a very dynamic dialogue with God in the car. And uh, God was very patient. He listened. He didn't butt in. He let me just get it all out. And I was just like, as if, why would I do that? This person's done this to me. Like, you know, what's happening here? Why do I have to go to them? I didn't do anything wrong. And I started building up my legal case for why I was in the right again. 
Things that I'd rehearsed many, many, many times already. So I had a very good argument by this point. Uh, God was quite surprised at how good a lawyer I was. Um, <laughs> not. And it came a moment in the conversation where I just said, God, what do you want me to do? And it was like this moment as I'm talking out loud in the car in traffic in Sydney as you do go through. And, and I just felt like God said, just, you just need to surrender it. You've got nothing to lose. So I decided I'm going to ring up the person. It's hands-free. Um, I ring up. I just can't deal with the extra judgment at the moment. So it was hands-free. I ring this person up and I think I'll leave a message and I'll say, listen, it would be great if maybe we could you know, catch up sometime and have a chat, have a coffee. The person just answers the phone after like one ring and says, my name. And I'm like, ah! I was like a bit caught off guard. I was like, Hi. It was like really awkward. I, I, I didn't even know how to. I was like, oh, um, sorry, I didn't expect you to answer. He's like, you rang me. <laughs> I said, I, I know, for some reason in my head, I thought it was going to get a voicemail. Uh, and so he says, how can I help you? I said, well, um, look, I, you know, I, I've been thinking and I thought maybe we might better meet up and, you know, just have a coffee sometime. I'd love to just, you know, catch up. And he said, I'm free right now if you want. And I was like, in my head, no. Uh, quick, excuse, what's your excuse? Oh, I'm, you know, like they were all started. And I said, sure. And he said, all right, cool, I'll meet you at this cafe. I said, all right. And then I drove there and I was like, what am I doing? What am I doing? I felt unprepared. I walked in and it was awkward. It was just awkward. There's no doubt about it. We sat down, we got the coffee. It was like awkward. Hey, how are you going? Good. How are you? Good. How's the kids? Good. Good. Lots of good. Um, and we sat down, and, and I was thinking in my head, I don't even know how to launch into this, so I just went, oh, no guts, no glory, here we go. I said, look, I know things have been uh, tough uh, between us, and I just want to say, I'm really sorry for anything I've done that's caused hurt or pain. Um, it's unintentional, and I just want to say I'm really sorry. person was so shocked they sat back in their seat. I can still visualize in my mind. And they went quiet. And what I thought was about to happen was they were about to say, thank you. And I just want to say, I'm so sorry for everything I put you through and I did to you. And I was just getting, preparing myself for that. I felt quite peace and calm for them. I was ready for that. And they didn't say that. They said, thank you. That means a lot. I'm like... In my head, I'm going, what means a lot? What did I do? What did I actually tell me what I did wrong? You know, like, I'm, I'm back into, like, how can you even be? And I'm in this whole process, and here's, here's how this happened. We, we chatted for, like, probably another 20, 30 minutes, and then we got up, and, and they were moved and, and grateful, and as we walked out, I'm thinking, I can't even believe this. This, this guy who said to me, you go and I, I just feel like I've just put myself in a position where I just made myself out to be the person who did the wrong thing. How's this good? And so we were about to say goodbye. And as I'm about to turn around and walk back to my car, the person stops me and says, hey, have you got another couple of minutes? And then they spent the next number of minutes saying to me, do you know what? That was a really difficult time that we went through. And I did not treat you well. And you did not deserve what happened. And I want to say I'm really sorry. 
And they shared a whole bunch more things. And then um, we finished up, we shook hands. And I could feel the emotion going in me. It was bubbling. And I got back to my car. I was in a shopping center car park. It's a little bit awkward. Busy time of the year, lots of people around. And I sat there and I did one of those like young kid cries where you can't stop, like you can't get your breath properly. You're like, <gasps> you, know that, you know those ones? I'm doing that in the car by myself. It was just overwhelming. This is like massive gush of emotion. And I realized, oh my goodness. I needed to hear those words so much. But I also equally needed to be able to go and play my part in bringing about that. It's so important that we don't stay internal. And we've got to make a decision. If we consider this, look around in our life and we say, hey, there's a relationship here that might need some renovation. We've got to decide, am I going to let go fully? In other words, it's not an issue. I just need to let go of it. And I'm going to have peace with this person and not harbor bitterness, envy, anger towards this person. Or I'm going to go fully to make peace and to do my part to reconcile. Andy Stanley is a, a speaker from the US. Some of you may have heard of his dad, Charles Stanley. He talks about a common approach that many of us have to fixing uh, relationships that are broken down. And since many of us have been taught how to um, stay away from conflict, we're often not very good at being able to reconcile and restore conflict. And the reality is this Christmas is a great opportunity for there to be conflict, isn't there? You're going to rock up to some family event or some Christmas party at work and that person's going to be there. There used to be a game, and I won't name anyone, but there was a game in a particular environment I was part of around Christmas time, which was how quick on your stopwatch before the first incident happens. Anyone ever played that game? It's kind of like a fun way to distract yourself from the actual real pain and stress of a relational tension. So we have to uh, think through what's our approach going to be around managing relationships. And here's what often is the typical approach. Andy Stanley calls this the C4 approach. Four C words. Just by the way, C4 is another name for an explosive. Just keep that in mind as we go through these. Have a look at this for a minute. He says, there are four things that we tend to try to do to manage broken relationships in our life. Number one, convince people. I'm, I'm pretty good at that one. Number two, convict people. I may have once or twice done that. Number three, coerce people. And number four, control people. Now let's unpack this for a minute. When we talk about convincing people, very often the idea here is, if I put enough information in front of you, I know you'll see things my way. Anyone here good at that? Okay. I'm going to present the case. Let's all be calm. And I'm going to present a compelling case for why my way of seeing this situation is right and you should adopt my view. Very often works. Doesn't work, I mean. Very often does not work. The second is convicting. I'm just going to remind you of all the things that you've done or I've done for you until you feel shame and guilt and then you do things my way. I bet no one in here has ever done that. Coercing. I said I'm sorry. Why are you still upset? I bet no one here has ever done that in a relationship. I said I'm sorry, which is translated, I've done my part. I said sorry. 
you should be fine now and we should be back to where we were. Since you're not fine, something must be wrong with you. This is something, by the way, that I think is really relevant more to our kids. I feel like this, this happens with our kids a whole lot. And the fourth one is control. It's this idea where we say things like, I'm sorry if I offended you, which is translated, you're too easily offended. What I said wouldn't have offended most people. Again, it's a way for us to have power over somebody else, and it's a really unhelpful way. Now, the Apostle Paul gives us some really practical advice in the letter to the Romans, which was a group of Christians that were now living in Rome, under the Roman Empire, and they were trying to work out how to live life as followers of Jesus under the Roman Empire. We talked a fair bit about this during our recent series on the book of Revelation. And in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 13, this is what he says. Love must be sincere. In other words, it's got to be authentic. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. And then he turns up the dial a little bit on the way we're to relate to people where there's difficulty and challenge. He says, bless those who persecute you. In their context, the Roman Empire, and having to live in a context counterculturally to the way that most people were living, where there was economic fallout and challenges to them not playing along with the empire. He says, bless and do not curse, which is getting back to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount on praying for those people who persecute you and blessing those people. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And then in verse 18, it says a really key line here. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. Now, this is a really important verse to pause on for a moment because when you realize someone else may have an offense or be hurt or disappointed with you and or you have an offense with someone else, you cannot make reconciliation happen. You can see that as the goal and the hope and that is God's hope and intention. But you cannot control somebody else's motivation, choices or how they respond to you. When I went to this person to say, I'm really sorry for anything I've done that's caused hurt or pain in your life, there was no guarantee as I began to experience at the beginning that they would respond and reconciliation would take place. But this verse reminds us very practically, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you. In other words, do your part. Make sure you're faithful to play your part and live at peace with everyone goes on and says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, this is a way of saying, God will ultimately deal with injustice. Our responsibility is to not deal with justice in our own terms or as we understand. He says, On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, what should you do for them? 
Feed them. That, doesn't, that sounds nice. But when they really are your enemy, do you think you feel like feeding them? No. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. <laughs> That's how you do I was trying to work out how do we do revenge this way. This is how you do it. You put burning coals on their head by being kind to them. Of course, this is probably not what Paul's getting at here. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here's the challenge. The passage reminds us that when we're talking about burning coals on someone's head, it's actually not about causing pain and suffering to the person because that clearly goes against everything Paul's just said and goes against the teaching of Jesus. It's a reference to the idea that kindness in God's economy leads to repentance. But when God offers kindness to us when we know we don't deserve it, it can be a hard pill to swallow sometimes. We think we have to earn it back. When someone does something incredibly kind and generous to you that you, that you know you don't deserve... It can feel like hot coals. It becomes a conscience issue. And it's either going to lead you towards change or it's going to be you, you put your heels down and you hold on to this thing and it will not be a pleasant experience. This is an opportunity through generosity and kindness to see transformation in people's hearts. This is what Paul is getting at here. Make things right with others. And as I said, there's no guarantee of reconciliation. I want to share with you, and I'm going to do this really quickly, just a few questions that I have to ask myself and I want to invite you to ask yourself during this Christmas renovation season. And here's some of the questions. And this is so incredibly important as we come around the table because this table where we take the bread and we take the cup is a place of reconciliation, us and God and us to our neighbours. Where when we take the bread, we remember the extent that Jesus went to in the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood to bring about reconciliation. God didn't wait for us to come to him to make things right. God came to us. In the story of the parable of the prodigal son who runs off and destroys his life, the father doesn't wait at home on his porch for his son to come back and grovel before him. The son comes back ready to grovel ready to beg for repentance, to be a slave. But the father sees the son before the son sees the father and he runs forth to bring reconciliation to his son, something that causes offence to his other brother. This table was a reminder for us to ask these questions. Number one, is there anyone or anything in my life where I need to go and bring about a Christmas renovation in hope and peace? Number two, do I want revenge or reconciliation? There was a moment in my life where I was struggling to let go of the pain and hurt. And when I heard something negative happen about this person that I had an offense with, there was that little part of me that was like, oh, okay, this is them getting their just desserts for treating me badly. But I realized that was a sign that I had not forgiven because you forgive when you can take the cup and the bread and you can sit down and you can look that person in the eye and love them the way Christ has loved you. Where you choose to forgive 
And as C.S. Lewis says, sometimes it takes years for those emotions to catch up, but you do it as an act of faith and commitment because this is what God has done for us. Number three is ask yourself the question, have I fully owned my part, even the unaware parts? Number four is, am I willing to understand before being understood? Am I willing to say, hey, help me understand how I've caused hurt or pain? Because I didn't mean to. But my intention doesn't mean there wasn't an impact. If there's an impact, the intention doesn't matter as much. There was still an impact. And so we want to say, I am sorry. I am sorry. And fifth, will I forgive? In other words, will I cancel the debt that I'm holding on to? And will I trust God regardless of their response? And if we can do this, number five, will I do all I can to make this right? In other words, as far as it depends on you, Our challenge this Christmas is, let's do for others what God has done for us. Thanks for listening to the Good Life Podcast. To stay up to date, make sure you subscribe on the platform you're listening to right now. If you're interested in our conversations that delve a bit deeper and are hosted by Hannah Bartle, you can check them out in the same feed. Otherwise, it would be amazing if you could like, follow, and even give us a five-star review. It all helps in getting the good news out there. You can head to our website, goodlife.org.au, for more information, or check out our YouTube channel for more video resources. Have a great week. Peace.